Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 22, M. The Super 70 is a commentary podcast meant to sync with the film we are watching. But you don't have to, though, and can just jam on in your car. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can now find it on Spotify and wherever else podcasts are found. I will be using the 2010 Criterion Collection Blu-ray of M, available at Criterion.com and occasionally found on Amazon. It is also available on the Criterion channel. If you press play on both of those options now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. So you should be seeing the Criterion logo. Yanis Films. We are going to open with a gong, which in Germany at this time is how they started certain newscasts on the radio. So in effect, Long is giving his German audience a cue that what they are seeing is a kind of documentary. The gong can also be associated with bell tolling, which you can see in almost all films is a way of introducing death before you actually see it. The children are going to be playing their game in a circle and the girl in the center is counting them off like a clock. And the purpose of the game is to find which one of them the killer is going to get next. There are a lot of references to time throughout M, and in a minute you're going to hear a cuckoo clock announce Elsie Beckman's release from school. Anton Kays breaks down the scene. Quote, The scene is set in a Berlin tenement courtyard, or Hinterhof, surrounded by multi-storied buildings and visible from all sides. Although the space seems protected and safe, the murderer's spirit has invaded it through the sound of the gruesome nursery rhyme, which, in serial fashion, is repeated three times. It is still heard when the camera begins to pan from the children's circle across the courtyard in order to explore the children's ambiance. The camera movement is jerky, as if handheld, and thus calling attention to itself. As the camera slowly moves upwards, it captures in passing two garbage bins. A chain of association begins to form that links naive children, murder, and refuse. A first map of reference points that will be elaborated in the following scenes. The camera comes to rest at a railing which cuts across the image, presenting a picture of division and separation. A tension between above, where the mothers work, and below where the children play. The children's song off-screen with its allusions to elimination and deprivation underlies and intensifies the desolate images. Long's off-screen sound expands the field of vision and suggests a space outside the frame but it also provides a commentary on what the camera shows. Cut to an empty staircase. A pregnant woman with a heavy basket of laundry enters the frame from below. The all-knowing camera awaits her. Through its very movement, angle, distance, and length of take, the camera comments, investigates, and exposes. In M's first scene, the camera separates the mothers, as there are no men in sight, from their children by walls balconies, railings, and closed doors. After the washerwoman has climbed stairs, she shouts down to the children to stop chanting that awful song, aware more than the children 
of the song's power to conjure up the mass murderer's appearance. The mother's interdiction stops the song for only a few seconds. The children, outside the frame, quickly resume the nursery rhyme. The result is at once funny and foreboding. The children do exactly what they like, openly disobeying the mother's command, challenging her weak authority. The cuckoo clock counts down to the murder. And now, back in the hacienda, is your favorite letterboxed commentator, Mr. Dave Anderson. How's it going, Dave? Oh, it's going tremendously well. Thank you for inviting me. I feel comfortable and right at home. Oh, wonderful. So I first saw him on videotape sometime in the mid-1990s on a 19-inch TV, and I instantly recognized it as the source of an MTV commercial yes. where Peter Lorre was running through a series of doors with the M on his back, and at the end of it, someone slapped the letters TV oh, yes. on the M. When did you first see M, and what did you think? First time I recall seeing M, because this is one of those movies that exists kind of in the public conscious in such manners as you described. It's like you know a lot of it, even if you've never seen it, at least for me. But the first time I recall seeing it was on the Criterion Collection DVD that I'd purchased fairly early on. This was one of their more early titles, if I recall correctly. I don't believe I had it on the Laserdisc because I'm that old. But I know I got it on the DVD and was pretty much flabbergasted. And that was probably in, what are we looking at? Probably the early 90s, 92, 93. DVD? Yeah. 93? I could be off, but that's kind of what I, I thought DVDs came out late oh, 90s, you're, like 98, no, 99. You're, you're mistaken. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> English, I speak it. I don't think very well, though. No, you're absolutely right. We've both right. been you're drinking. absolutely right. It was much later than that, but way later than that but it was long enough ago obviously in my mind it's ancient history it's still 20 plus years ago exactly yeah, that's distressing oh, but when, when when did the first criterions come out i mean it was on dvd I, mean. I don't think i would trust any answer i give you at this point yeah. but i can look it up on the google net i'm going to assume at this point because i'm obviously way off that it was late 90s yeah, well, I remember the first ones they reissued were the, mm -hmm. the first, obviously, the single-digit spine numbers, the Seven Samurai mm -hmm. and the Seven Seal and things like that. And I, I thought it was the late 90s, but there was a big battle between the Laserdiscs and the, oh, yeah. and the DVDs. A, of, long, a lot of people refused to buy DVDs because yeah, they, they didn't want Laserdiscs to go away. Well, you know, there was a certain degree of um, justification behind that. There was the personal justification because people had spent a lot of money on their laserdisc collections which was dramatically better than the vhs which you could acquire at the time and dramatically better than beta but it wasn't actually all that much worse than the original dvds that were non-anamorphic right i remember criterion in particular their first maybe 50 widescreen editions weren't anamorphically enhanced and it was not i mean it was certainly better but it wasn't this huge jump but it didn't take a whole lot of time to straighten out those technical issues this, of course, being, you know, presented Academy, it didn't really matter, and it was just a better picture. So I do recall first time watching it was in that format in, I guess, probably the late 90s. Right. Because I definitely had Regan at that point. She was, you know, she was 98, so it was probably, hell, it may have been like 2000 even, somewhere in that range. 99, somewhere in that range. But that's the first time I recall seeing it. And pretty much even now, watched it again just recently, kind of remarkable how modern in quotes the film really is both in the techniques used to tell the story and the story itself yeah and it's 
like this staircase shot. Yeah, there's a reason why it's a classic. And it, 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 it holds up. It could come out today, and obviously it would be a little bit dated. But at the same time, everything flows pretty truthfully to what we experience today. Yeah. I've watched it maybe three times in the past 90 days preparing for this podcast. Uh, I saw it uh, when I picked up the Blu-ray, I think, in 2010 mm-hmm. when Criterion first introduced it. Um, and I was uh, – and I, I I don't really have a good recollection of, of – of seeing it in 2010, but I remember uh, watching it just recently with my son up in our, our theater upstairs and just thinking like, holy crap. I, I just couldn't believe the, uh, the framing, the mise-en-scene, uh, the composition of the shots, the, uh, the different type of shot collections that uh, uh, Long is using. It just seemed like you said, like incredibly modern. Uh, a lot of films at the time in, in Hollywood don't hold a candle to him. No. It, and, I am going to mispronounce his name consistently. Long? Well, okay, I'm going to preface that by saying that I don't speak German. I'm not fluent. I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. Um, I'm sure that the way we say taco is wrong in Spanish. Or, or we say Madrid, but in Madrid, they say like Madrid or something of that Certainly. nature. Right? So... Um, when I, when I was in grad school studying film, mm-hmm. you know, my professor who actually, I asked Dr. Barbara Hales, who, who specifies on 20th century German film. And she's an expert on Weimar cinema. I asked her to actually sit on this podcast. You're actually, oh, you should have. you're, you're she, well, well, yeah, well, she turned it down. So you're actually the backup. You're the, you're the honorary. Oh, I should definitely be at best tertiary. <laughs> tertiary. So I, I asked her to sit in, and she said, "Well, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to do it." She said she was too shy, which I find hysterical because she gets up in front of hundreds of people. And yeah, talks that's about hundreds of people, and five times. Format such as this, you may be exposed to millions. Well, that's very kind of you to think. Millions, sir. I, I, I don't think that's the case. The letter we're going to get into in, in a bit here, but it is, it is a remarkably modern film. Oh, and what I was going to say was. You know, I've always pronounced my brain as Fritz Lang, so I'll You're probably right. always do that. That's fine. Um, That's fine. But, you know, I have been reading a book you'd loaned me from BFI that yeah. this was his first sound film, right. which when you watch this, it's really pretty shocking because it's very subtle with the sound. Um, there's not the overdramatics that I'm not – that I'm pretty much used to in the early sound films. You know, I think back to, like, Al, Al Jolson, you know. Oh, yeah, the jazz. Where it's just so big. You know, where a lot of you had to over emote both for the theater and silent films that in my brain is probably inaccurate, but it's just what I think, you know, is really over the top. Whereas this is very subtle and good. Oh, absolutely. And two thirds of this is shot uh, without sound equipment, mm-hmm. right? Because they didn't want to pay for the rental. Long didn't want to pay for the rental. Nero film was not that rich. It wasn't like UFA or anything. Gotcha. Um, so th- we missed the, well, we didn't miss it, but the cop who was escorting Elsie across the street is a sense that no one is safe. I mean, in a sense, like the cop is escorting Elsie to her death. Mm-hmm. It's not too long after that that she runs into uh, Beckman. So the, the cop is, there's a theory that the cop's not doing his job, or I should say a feeling, not a theory. The mother is waiting for Elsie to return. And that is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's really well done. And, and waiting in, in Weimar is, is related to nerves. You can kind of feel the, the ratcheting up of attention until the, the murder, obviously, is a release with the balloon going through the wire and so forth. So sound is life and silence is death in this film. And when Elsie is murdered, the sound cuts out. 
and her anthropomorphic balloon with a painted face and miniature arms animalistically comes to life in a mimic of her or possibly her spirit as it floats away in silence. So you'll see the empty staircase again after that. There's an empty attic. So that's basically an empty life. So sound is largely not used in this film. There's a lot of silence. And William Friedkin called this movie uh, a silent film with sound. And that's a pretty apt description. I think so. Yeah. So since we're in the sound era, now's a good time to get into diegetic sound and non-diegetic sound. Diegetic sound is a sound whose source is visible on screen or whose source is implied to be present by the action of the film. So voices of the characters, like you have here, diegetic sound. Sounds made by objects in the story, diegetic sound. Music coming from instruments in the story space, diegetic sound, like someone putting on a record player that you hear. Anything that comes from the film's world. It can be an explosion off screen as long as the character of the story turns his head to see it. Non-diegetic sound works differently. That is a sound that has a source that is not visible on screen, nor has it been implied in the action on screen. So examples, a narrator's commentary, non-diegetic sound. Sound effects that are added for dramatic effect, non-diegetic sound. Moods, music, such as the score, non-diegetic sound. M has mostly diegetic sound. Uh, Peter Lorre whistling The Hall of the Mountain King is diegetic. All the footsteps in the film are diegetic. The film has no score, so the largest source of non-diegetic sound is not here. So uh, we missed Elsie bouncing the ball off the wanted poster uh, where Peter Lorre's shadow comes on. And that's going back to uh, Long's expressionist mm -hmm. cinema. And Lorre bends over, cut to Elsie's mother bending over with a knife. That's the very next shot. So there's a lot of transitions like that that are not easily paired with each other and are, are actually kind of confusing to a lot of people who who see the film. Like, you would think that maybe Long is trying to say that the mother is the murderer since she has the knife. But we know that that's not true. Right. So he's pairing something that you deliberately know that is not right. Like this man coming after the child uh, just wanting to be a, uh, a good Help guy and give the, yeah, just give the kids some candy. And now we've got uh, – now we know that he's not the murderer. Right, but he was acting suspiciously to our eyes or to the public. Which this is a, a, a the whole movie really is a tremendous criticism of the public and hysteria and basically mob rule. I mean, there's so many examples throughout the entire thing that illustrate that. This is a good example where, like you said, nice guy helping out a little girl, and it escalates. It escalates quickly. Yes. And these these murders, I'm sorry, I'm trying to go through my notes here. I had a specific section just right on mob rule, and it is gone. Um, this whole this whole thing where the, the cop is, the cops are now trying to save the murderer. Mm -hmm. So now the cops are the bad guy because he's not the murderer. They're just trying to save an innocent civilian, right. and the mob just turns on him. And then, of course, there's a scene when when uh, Loman goes down to the to the speakeasy. Yes, I which, call it a speakeasy. They didn't. They didn't we're going to call it a speakeasy because that's what I thought of as well. My wow. Right. Yeah, but they didn't ban alcohol. In, yeah, I was about to say they didn't have prohibition so. in Germany because that would not work out. Right. There might be a world war that starts out of it. Oh wait. Um, yeah. Right. So uh, the implication of the letter M in German is murderers among us. 
uh, long story in the BFI was uh, uh, he went in to get money from Nero for the film. He, no, he went in to get the, the studio from Ufa, <clears throat> which was an old Zeppelin hangar that was outside of Berlin that that, uh, that Ufa had put sound stages in and Nero was going to rent it. And he went in there to convince the guy and he said, well, tell me about the movie. So he was, he was saying, well, it's called M and it's about a murderer and he's going on to it. And the guy just kind of blanked out and he wasn't being very kind. He was going to hand over the keys to the studio. And at the end of it, uh, he said, so that's basically what it's about. It's about a child killer. And so then the guy was like, oh, a child killer. And then he said, no, yeah, no problem. Here are the keys to the studio. Mm-hmm. So when Long went to go pick up the keys off of his desk, he said he leaned over the desk and he saw that the guy was wearing a swastika on his lapel. And then it occurred to him that he was a, he was obviously Ufa was owned by the German government and that this guy was a party member and that he thought the film was about the Nazis, which so you he, could watching this movie, you could easily translate a lot of it. There's a lot of fascist behavior in the mm-hmm. film. And here, uh, Laurie contorting his face into uh, what he thinks see, and, he uh, is. That's interesting. Cause a lot of it I don't see as fascist, a criticism of fascist behavior as much as I see a lot of it as criticism of the public willing to give up a lot of sanity Yes. And dignity. And their rights. Give up, to, to stop something that's admittedly, you know, horrible. The worst thing on the planet. Or top five at least. Yeah. But mob rule, again, going back to that, really happens quite a bit in this. And it is sort of ironic, or maybe it's exactly the point, how the criminals are actually the ones that are successful in the end. Yeah, and a little bit coincidental in the past few weeks, we've been subject to looting hmm. all over this country recently. Yeah. Which we won't deep dive into that. So, well, look at this shot. My God. Oh. You know, I mean, 10 years before Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah. It's, again, the, the framing is all set up kind of perfectly. It's unfortunate that this wasn't a right widescreen film because that just wasn't a technology that was employed or even thought of it this time, but it certainly opened up to show as much of an image as possible and everything in the frame is important. Right. Yeah. Uh, like I was saying before, this was shot in the stock and Zeppelin hall of January to February, 1931. It took six weeks to film 144 other films were shot in Weimar, Germany in 1931. The spending on films in Germany dropped because of the Great Depression from $328 million in 1929 to $238 million in 1932 due to, obviously, the, just lack the, fall of funds. In, yeah, the lack of funds. So we should be lucky that we have M at all. Uh, Absolutely. There's a lot of you know, genius. Is that Mickey Mouse in the back on the counter? It's not Mickey Mouse. It is a character. I noticed that as well. It's a, it's a character from one of the, from um, um, Steamboat Willie, I believe, but I don't. It's, not, it's, it's a, from a Disney Mouse. cartoon. Yeah, it absolutely is. is. Okay. Unless I'm wrong, because I knew so well on when the Criterion DVDs got released and when I watched them, obviously my memory is top notch. Right. <laughs> okay, so. Oh, and this is actually perfect. I'm, I'm sorry. There's so yeah. much of this movie that I really, really enjoy. So right now we're watching, um, is this, is he the prime minister? I'm not, or he's the minister? He's, he's a politician. He's, he's definitely a politician. I think, I think he's a, a municipal 
person, and this is just, this is the cop, right? Right, berating the head of police. Right. Just get it done. Why isn't it done? It's done, right? Why aren't you done? Where there's an implication, and, and a lot of it makes a lot of sense because there's that, what I find pretty comical criticism of his lack of understanding of how it works, but also the desperation, and that's kind of sums up exactly like how the public is. Yeah. Why isn't this fixed? Why isn't there a cure for the coronavirus right now? Right. And it, right. obviously that's not what... Catch the murderer. What's exactly. your problem? Why, Catch this the isn't murderer. hard. Why aren't you doing your job? Yes. And this is a remarkable, in my opinion, you know, introduction I read where, and it seems accurate, where this is kind of the introduction of the police procedural. Yeah. It, there's focusing on nuts and bolts. We not had a chance to speak about it, but there was a segment where, you know, two gentlemen arguing over the color of the hat, which made me think that they were both potentially colorblind and it was neither red nor green. Oh. But... They have that scene where I never realized because I never had thought about it. But there was some pretty sophisticated police work utilized and displayed in this movie. Yes. Um, I, I know in the book that I borrowed from you that you loaned me, I can't remember the number of fingerprints that the German police had on file, but it was an extraordinary number. Maybe it was 100 million fingerprints in their file at this point. I never would have considered that. Yeah. Yeah, the statistics. But then it immediately veered into the crackpot analyzing the handwriting. And you'll see that same type of thing in CSI today. Not as well done, of course. No, no. No, and you'll see a little bit of that in... Um... This is a bit cliche, though. They use German shepherds. <laughs> Sorry. No, they're Alsatians, okay? Uh, oh, Not German shepherds. You can't say German shepherd after the war, right? you got to say Alsatian. Somebody might take it away. Uh, Long's research included a stint that he spent in an asylum, which may or may not have included uh, Peter Curtin. Peter Curtin was a serial killer in Weimar, Germany, yes. um, who was caught before Long shot him. And the trial was right before the premiere of M at the Zoampalast. So M was really ripped out of the day's headlines. It was very topical. And it was considered a Zeit film, which is a film that dealt openly with social problems of the time. And the screenplay is credited to his wife, Thea von Harbo. And there is no reason to doubt that she had this significant contribution. There are some people that like to say, well, we don't know if she really wrote him. And, and they're very hesitant to give her full credit because she why, stayed. Why would they? Oh, okay. Right. And there's this idea of, well, if you stayed, then we don't like you. So because we don't like you, then we're going not going to give you as much credit wow, as we would. Wow, that sounds so familiar to it, today. It, it does. Wow. It does. Right. But Long not never Long never said anything different. He always said, my wife wrote that screenplay. So when he fled to the States, did they get divorced? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was an assumption, but I had yeah. no idea. They, apparently they had an argument, and uh, she she wanted to stay with Ufa, and it, of course it meant the dramatic acceleration of her career. Do you think it was that simple as Nazis good, Nazis bad? Oh, n no, no. <laughs> I, I, I hesitate to get into no, what it was not, like to be yeah. married to Fritz Long. I'm sure I, that I, was... I'm sure it's a delight. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, Gosh, this anyway. Is another just damn good shot. This is a shot of the alley watching the police just canvas... The entire, the red yeah, light. Yeah, there's district. another M in that shot, too. You notice that there are certain shots in this film where the, he's playing around with shadows mm -hmm. or, or uh, uh, in geometry, and he's making an M uh, in the geography of the picture. I actually had not noticed there's, that. I yeah, totally believe it. There's several of them. I think the the last count just 
off the top of my head, there's probably three. And that, that previous one was using certain geometrical lines uh, coupled with shadows. But at the near closer to the end, when, when he's being chased down and run down on the street, he's running down an alleyway. There's a shadow of an M on the alleyway. And, and that's a fact. I'll just show it to you if, if I happen to be looking at the screen when it comes up. Oh, uh, and the language. Goddamn bastard. Son of a bitch. This is not a Hayes Code picture. No. God, I mean, it, the, the, the films of this time frame, there, there is some pretty remarkable, just, it's, they're so well done. Oh, well, I should say that this is pre-Hayes Code, but obviously it would never come into effect because it's, it's in Germany. But Germany had a long history of just putting stuff in that, because it was European Right, it was uh, more country. realistic. Portrayal. I'd say so. In some regards. Liberal is the wrong word. But if you look at Olympia, um, you know, mm-hmm. Riefenstahl's film, 1936, or, or Festival of Lights or whatever it's called, the first part, um, you know, the, I mean, there's nudity in that. Shocking. Yeah. Showing Olympic athletes nude. The people that we wouldn't want to see, wrong. Right. So Harbo had over 70 writing credits, including uh, Destiny, which is also a long film, Dr. Mabusa the Gambler. The Nebelung uh, Metropolis and the Testament of Dr. Mabusa. I have is, not seen that. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. Okay, we'll get back to it. It later. is amazing. I've heard that. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, not as good as M, but, That's you know, a, if no. it's, you know, one to M, it's yeah, a nine. exactly. You know. Uh, and she did a shitload of films for the Nazis, and it's rumored that she's the, the writer of Kohlberg. So Kohlberg was the big push in 1944 where Goebbels is like, I know how we're going to convince everybody that we're going to win. Uh, we're going to make an enormous, like, Napoleon picture. And they actually took, like, 100,000 soldiers off the front and used them for this movie. And it's like, really? You think maybe if you had those soldiers in the front, the war would probably last a little bit longer. But whatever. Yeah, and, and used uh, Albert Speer's trucks to, to bring in, like, snow for certain shots when they could have been taking supplies to the front. You know, things like that. Propaganda does help. So um, she is famous for being a, a sympathizer. And she died in 1954. Now, Long had an amazing career, uh, separated by what people call his German period and his Hollywood period. So he did Harry Kiri in 1919, Destiny 1921, Dr. Mabusa the Gambler 1922, Dene Belungen 1924, Metropolis 1927, The Testament of Dr. Mabusa 1933, and then Hollywood with Fury 1936, Hangman Also Die 1943, which is about the assassination of uh, uh, Reinhard Heydrich. Uh, Ministry of Fear, 1944, also on Criterion. Right. And he was known for churning out film noirs like Scarlet Street, 1945, uh, Cloak and Dagger, 1946, The Big Heat, 1953. And he did that weird-ass exploitation film with uh, Deborah Paget called uh, The Indian Tomb in 1959. I'm not familiar with that. Oh, that's very... It's a color film, Technicolor, Panavision. Yeah, it's very bizarre. And, uh, I mean, for for 1958, like almost... Borderline X-rated. It's crazy. And most of what we know about Fritz Long is his interviews with uh, Peter Bogdanovich and uh, William Friedkin. Okay, uh, Elsie's murder. Uh, We missed it again, but Lori's head actually covers the word murderer with this shadow on the wanted poster for uh, 10,000 marks. And that poster was next to a poster of a boxing match and a movie theater advertisement. So it's sort of in the mix as far as pop culture is concerned. Yeah, and it definitely dates it as a tale about right now. Right. When this had come out, of course. Yeah. 
Do you think think there was a mimicking going on, like his bowler hat and his bald head? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I I would be surprised if there was anything in this movie that's by accident. I mean, it it it, it probably wasn't, but it strikes me as one of those films that was completely. Um, I'm totally blanking on the word because I'm a dummy. Written down? No, not written down, but storyboarded. Right. And I don't think it was, probably, but I haven't the foggiest. But it strikes me as a movie that has got that much detail that you could see where it would have been storyboarded down to the nth degree. I mean, it's it's kind of like a Kubrick film in my mind in a lot. It's It seems like it's so well planned before mm-hmm. anything was ever shot. Um, there was a great documentary on editing called uh, Side by Side which I recommend any, any film fan um, show. And I don't remember if it was Steven Soderbergh or so, someone of that nature, Paul Thomas Anderson or something. And they were talking about, uh, they did not consider principal photography to be the creation of the film. Okay. They considered editing to be the well, creation yeah. of the film. Oh. But like this shot uh, with the consumerism and everything like this, like, and the shot before it and the shot after and, it, I find it hard to believe that Long would agree with that notion of editing. I, I think it's probably one of those that he would look at it with a little bit more balance. You know, yeah, this strikes me as something that he filmed exactly what he saw. And I would be shocked if there were deleted scenes, you know, that existed ever. You know, I can't see a possibility where there would have been a, quote, director's cut of this movie. Yeah, there's only one deleted scene in, from him. But we'll, it, we'll get to that later. Go ahead. No, 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 no. That's it. It's just it's it's really tight, even though it's almost two hours long. It's what 117 minutes, right? And it's really tight, and it, there's not a lot of wasted time. There's not a lot of wasted space, and which is kind of shocking considering you know fundamentally it's a fairly simple story. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of allegories and things attached to it that make it significantly more complex. But, and I do like the uh, the. Uh, owner of the bar here berating the police for ruining her business when all she does is serve you know the seedy underbelly right. of berlin yeah of course but she's a sympathetic character actually most everybody in this movie is sympathetic even if you don't necessarily want to hang out with them it's like you can see and understand almost all their motivations yeah why are you bugging me i'm not a serial killer Right, it, it's it's it's, it's like a poor the guy business gets, woman trying to make a die, trying to make a buck. It's the guy who gets pulled over for speeding and says, "There's serial killers out there. Why am I?" You know, yeah. and that is actually pretty much alluded to, if not stated explicitly in this movie. Right, they pick up a pickpocket. He's like, "Why are you bugging me?" Yeah, and and Long noticed uh, what he described as uh, angst, psychosis, uh, psychosis of fear, a revolting mentality that mingled misanthropy with overzealousness to produce the kind of behavior that led to the denunciation of neighbors and other associates. M mounts a number of scenes immediately following the news of Elsie Beckman. That's when that we noticed when it was going on, when they were pulling a guy in the crowd in which the, the usual suspects are rounded up by the police officials and the mob mentality on the street. So we see how the mob takes control. The media stokes fears. And now we have cancel culture, Twitter trials yeah. in this, this is collective psychosis and angst, psychosis, bevolkerung is what they say in German, rampant paranoia. And you see this really heavy in Long's American films, 
like Fury, Ministry of Fear, Hangman Also Die, which is just a paranoid delusion, I think. That film is another just – if you haven't seen it, you should give it a shot. It's pretty crazy. And and all of that is, is based on what is effectively a crime serial, which was very popular in Germany during the Weimar Republic. Uh, G.W. Papps directed a film called uh, – Pandora's box, yes. which romanticized, uh, you know, like a Jack the Ripper type of, of killer. And Peter Curtin, like he was a modern day Ripper, he got the death penalty. And the cop in the case supposedly was the prototype for uh, Carl Lohman, right? Curtin actually wrote uh, an anonymous letter to the cops, kind of like the Zodiac killer, where he is telling them where he buried one of his victims and they ignored him. So he sent one to the newspapers and it caused a huge panic and lots of copycats. And one guy confessed who was actually put on trial and he was later committed to an asylum. Uh, and then they found the body. And then of course the public was outraged. Like, why didn't you take him seriously? Why did he have to contact the paper? Which is because there only had 20,000 other, other copies of, to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, or the, well, the copycats or yeah. the, the people who were sending in, but that, that is the interesting thing that, it's like that scene in Zodiac by David Fincher mm-hmm. when um, uh, how many leads do you have? Yeah, 90 this hour. At this rate, we'll never find them. Yeah, it's 90 and none. Right. But it is kind of – it is one of those things that isn't really explored too dram- really at all as far as I can recall in this movie in that, you know, at the end when he is pleading for his life and justifying his behavior, so to speak, he presents it as if it's a burden that he's carrying, which is – I don't. I don't disagree with it. You know, I, I have a desire to kill young girls. Oh, that's a burden. Right. Sounds like it. Right. But he's also desperately wanting recognition, which oh yes, fights against his primary thrust of the. I can't control it. I don't want to do it. It's like eh, maybe you do. Right. So well, it, that's not too far off the mark. I mean, some of our greatest no, crimes no, no, in no, history, no. like they suffer from the same thing. Like if you. Uh, uh, you read a book or any book by uh, Raoul Hilberg, who's like one of the four. I don't think he's passed away now, but he's one of the foremost scholars of the Holocaust. And he talks about like the massive problem that the Holocaust was for the bureaucrats of actually trying to conceive of, create and execute a plan of mass execution on that scale. It was problem after problem after problem. And it, was, it created great stress on these individuals. The the thing is, not once did they think, well, maybe I wouldn't have this stress. If I chose not to do this right. job. <laughs> exactly. So there was a morality there that was in check. And it's the same situation with uh, uh, with Laurie's character. Really, like he thinks I'm carrying this great burden. I mean, well, yes. But uh, absolutely. You shouldn't have to carry that burden. We all agree. But that's the thing, right. is there's a pretty poignant argument in, presented in this movie that he actually isn't guilty of his crimes. Right. And that is the one thing that in this film somewhat disagrees with its own thesis. Oh. But we're not paying any attention to the movie. And that guy looks a lot like Thomas Hayden Church. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. Because you're much smarter than I in such things. Well, I don't know about that. Okay. So So now we're going to the first meeting of the organized crime board yeah which looks like a modern corporation you know pinstripe suit right the the leather gloves are the only thing that look kind of um i hate to use this word but gestapo-y 
you know, and later on, he said, this is Struker, the, the crime boss, right. the kind of like he's the, the lucky Luciano type of guy. Mm-hmm. He's, he's later, the, high, the most highly respected of the crew. Yeah. And later on, he shows up in like a leather jacket. Mm-hmm. Like, and he really looks like a, like he walked out of the Gestapo then. Right. Which is interesting because a lot of his planning and thoughts and arguments are very logical. Maybe that's exactly what the point was, mm-hmm. was that, sorry, don't know the Gestapo that well. Thank God. <laughs> You know, but maybe it is a criticism of that where it's presented as very logical until you get a little bit deeper, in which case, well, no, this is madness. But, I mean, he is probably the most, well, the most logical and effective character in the whole movie. Yeah. His plan makes sense. His execution is perfect. He catches a criminal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 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 he's the prosecutor at the the end of the film. Yeah. puts forth a very compelling argument. Yeah. Which is rather that, okay, we'll get to it later. Of the trial, exactly. Yeah, well, that's that's all good. Um, and good God, I wish I could smoke in your house because these people <laughs> are putting out four packs a day. It's amazing how much smoking is in this film. And you know, it's you know, I wish the people could yeah. watch it with us yeah. because we didn't have even had a chance to talk about it. But I noticed when I watched it again when that the. Uh, for lack of a better term, the crew that's hanging out at the bar, it looks like they should be a poker party. Yeah. If the old men, and they end up accusing each other. And the one guy has the pipe with the cigar stuck in it. I'm like going, that guy's a professional. <laughs> no, I'm using that. a cigar and a pipe. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a pro. But look at this. You got smoke just coming right by the camera. It's, it, no. And it's it, obscuring the, the white tuxedo there. Like maybe he's not nearly as pure as we think him to be. And do you think that's on purpose, or do you oh. think it's just one of those things where it's a representation of day-to-day life? And this God, with frame. Lang, you never really – it's like you see stuff in Kubrick films, and you think, that's got to be a mistake. But then, like, it's Kubrick, so you don't – I see the same shit in Fincher films. Right. Like, if, if – if 99 takes, it's in there for a fucking it, reason. It it's be. not an accident. It can't be. And not to say that Long took it to that nth degree. No, but I it, understand. There's so much crap. Well, like that statue over that guy's shoulder, that means something. something. It's there for a reason. And I don't know if that's something that's topical at the time. It, I, I would it's why, it is. It's why I want Dr. Hales here is to tell me what, what did that fucking mean back in 1930? Yeah, it's – I mean, like I said, it is a movie that strikes me as very much completely built, packaged, and done before they even began. Yeah, storyboarded. Yeah, completely every... storyboarded. It, it may not have been, but man, I can't see how it couldn't have been. It's just so careful. Like that previous shot being divided, like for, for some reason, M wanted Loman on the left standing uh, against the wallpaper. See, and then that guy sitting on the right with the curtains behind him. They're clearly being divided. Yes. And what is Long saying by that? Because he did it for a reason. Because Loman is about the only one in this entire movie who is presented sympathetically. You know, I think, I mean, even though I was just talking about the safe cracker, definitely the most efficient character in the film. I mean, Loman is definitely the most kind-hearted protagonist, if you will, because obviously other people are He wants to catch the bad guy. He wants to catch the bad guy. But yeah, this movie is, definitely does not strike me as Casablanca. Where it's, there's no reason it should have worked, and it did. Yeah, there's. We all like to think <laughs> again, that. Again, man, there's a it, lot of smoke. Oh my God, it's a crazy <laughs> amount of smoke. Yeah, we like to think that, you know, my Casablanca was like a given hit because of Curtiz and everything, but 
really there's it should have been a disaster it should have been a flaming disaster i learn (laughs) about how they shot that movie uh, i am just absolutely shocked that casablanca is 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 so good which is in my litany is definitely top 10 yeah but i mean yeah it should be a total flaming disaster it should be but again god my god the smoking is just Driving me crazy now. Okay, so we're gonna have to, have to take our, a pause. Our, and... our next podcast is going to be on the back porch. I'm going to mic the back porch <laughs> so we can sit out there. Okay, uh, back to uh, Pierre Gint. Yes. And do you know why Thea Von Harbo chose Pierre Gint? I will. I do not know, so please inform me. Aha, uh-huh, let me tell you. The song is by Edvard Grieg, but the play is by Heinrich Ebsen. And in the play, Pierre Gint is right about to be married when he is endowed with a tail. And he protests and he says, quote, are you making a beast out of me? And so it's a cliche that women, by inspiring sexual desire, turn men into beasts. So this is like Norman Bates type shit. That's why so that's Beckman is whistling yeah, here again. That's exceptionally right? troubling because they, they, they obviously, due to decorum or, you know, just the restrictions at the time, thank goodness, they don't really go into the actual crime dramatically. Right. They certainly reference it as if it is bone chilling, which in and of itself, a killing a child certainly is by definition. But there is a certain level of revulsion that now that you say that kind of makes me grossed out. Well, it's very rare to see in, in any film except for like horror slasher films where it's just so over the top that it, that it almost doesn't mean anything. Right. You know, but the, the one recently where that I thought, you know, well, I mean, even it came out. It handled it very well. There were things Stephen King's it. It was just sort of not shot or or not on screen. Uh, however, Doctor Sleep has a child murder in it. I've heard this, but I, I still have to watch that. But I've heard that's very troubling. Uh, it's very upsetting to watch. Um, I have to say that uh, I've watched it twice, and they handled it. Very well, because they knew what they're doing was going to be upsetting. Yeah, you kind of have to. Right. It wasn't like uh, Mystic River or something like that, where it's just like, I, I do not want to be here. I do not want to sit here. Dr. Sleep takes a different route, and it's hard to explain without actually seeing it. But uh, they handled the victim with the greatest amount of respect, considering that it was a work of fiction that I think they possibly could have. I was really surprised. And not that I'm not going to, like... I got you. Uh, well, no, I watch it again. I, you know, it's not like, oh, I can't wait until that yeah, scene. You're, that's, not, you're not fast-forwarding to that? Uh, what? No, no. Um, but, you know, it's still upsetting to watch, but it, it, it has an emotional point. If you're going to do something like that, please, for God's sakes, make an emotional point. But, you know, um, getting a little bit off topic here, you know, that was kind of King's point in, in a lot of his books, particularly in... Um, um, uh, in it, you know, a lot of people were upset that, you know, there are these preteens having this orgy at the end of the, the, the book. And a lot of people were upset at King for writing about it. And it's like, oh, but the child murders are OK. Yeah. You know, 13 and 14 year olds can't can't have an orgy. But, you know, you can kill a child. That's perfectly fine. I don't think anybody ever said that that was OK, too. Well, that's not that. Well, that wasn't what they were <laughs> upset about. And if you're going to be upset about anything in it, you know, yeah, but please, okay, my God, we the child will, murders. We will put that till the till the back end. <laughs> okay. We'll push I, I, that I mean, to. To the okay, so again, the we're watching this movie in by Fritz Long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. Counting out the cigars. Counting out the cigars, the sizes, the lengths. It's there, all phallic. There's a, a okay. So Pierre Gint was being staged in Berlin in 1928. 
uh, and Cerner Krauss played the role of Pierre Gint. And uh, guess what famous movie role he had uh, during Weimar? I'm not even going to try. Dr. Caligari. Oh. Yeah. There was Unfortunately, a, another movie I have not seen. Oh, that, that's a good one. No, I, I don't know. Yeah. They're, all, they're all good. There's so many great films. It's just life. Yeah. Mr. Credit is dead and buried. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The commentary on the walls in the beggar's restaurant or bar, if you will, are really funny. I mean, authentically would be funny today. They're actually almost out of a kids in the hall type of criticism. It's really entertaining. And this same shot mimicking the what the police were doing before with all oh, yeah. of their pieces of evidence that they were collecting, right? Everybody's the same. The beggars, the criminal masterminds, the organization, the police. Everybody's pretty much it's doubling the, same. the entire society like an, an it's yeah. You know, an underworld and an overworld. There was a vote in Germany in 1995 on what was the greatest German film of all time. And M got number one. That would be, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but it would be almost surprising if it wasn't. I mean, this kind of is what I perceive as their Citizen Kane with the ex- notable exception, potentially, of Metropolis. Yeah. Or Caligari. I mean, I know that those are all... Super well respected. Right? Yes, you can see Metropolis. I don't see on, any uh, Fassbender films film. being, you know, number oh, one no, films. No, no, I mean, no. I, he's an acquired taste. Yeah, I, I don't particularly like what I've seen of it. But it's one of those where these are acknowledged. I mean, look at this shot here. It goes right through right the goddamn through the thing. He, he pulled the paint aside just right at the last moment. It happens so quick you almost don't notice it. Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, the moving camera in and of itself. Because how big were the cameras back then? Oh, enormous. 50 pound beast. Enormous, yeah. But it's very agile. And this shit rivals stuff that Robert Zemeckis was doing 50 years later. Yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, I could see somebody making an argument where there's the technical expertise displayed in this is really not a whole lot lower than Citizen Kane. I could see that. And I could see that being a very justifiable argument. I mean, this is a classic that is. Underappreciated, underappreciated, which is rather shocking. Yeah, and here, and here, a lot of still more uh, doubling going on, right? Like he's he's assigning these bums mm-hmm. certain stations all over the city, keeping track and writing it down, just like you would a beat cop. Yep. Now they're very well organized. They're very thoughtful. I like how there's a Miller the Sixteenth. That's pretty sweet. Right. You're caught up in the the story in the the narrative. And actually, this is another thing I had noticed is right now we're in the assignation of the bums. If you notice, the reward put out by the criminals at 15000 is actually more than had originally been offered by right. 10,000 marks. 10K. Yeah. yeah. So they mean business. Right. For multiple, I mean, mostly it's selfish reasons. They need to preserve their lifestyle and their freedom, so to speak. But it is pretty remarkable. It's like, you know. The means just the you know the ends justify the means. Right. I don't know if I agree with that, but I well, found that a pretty interesting and probably totally on purpose. You know, point. It's fifteen k. It's five, which is certainly a lot of a lot. Yeah, especially back then during the depression, right? Oh, that's distressing. I like this though. The blind man with the black what not German Shepherd. Yeah, Alsatian. Alsatian, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But they're paying attention. That sign means pick up. 
<laughs> so he's walking by with the child. You know, this very suggestive stuff. So this is not a movie that you want to like. It's a movie that you like regardless. Yeah. Uh, there's so, so heavy expressionism here. So what is expressionism? Aha. German expressionism? Yeah. The use and manipulation of objective reality to reflect the inner emotions and responses of the artist. I actually looked that up. I, I don't doubt be, it. Because the, to ask me, do I know what it means? Well, I say that I do, but what, you know. But you couldn't define it as succinctly as that. Exactly. Expressionism appears in certain stylized visual arrangements, which sometimes, but not always, have symbolic reference beyond their factual content and artistic form. So long telling you that time is important by having the children stand in a circle and count off like a clock, that's expressionism. Peter Lorre's shadow over the word murder when he's talking to Elsie, that's expressionism. That's all I had. Oh, that's, that's fine. I, I, you know, I don't know if this is an expressionism, expressionistic well, movie or not. I suspect, based on what you're saying, it is. I think, I, there's, I think there's a lot of it in that. The, the letter, by the way, that was actually, that's one of the, one of the ways how they caught Peter Curtin was he was using a certain type of pencil uh, on a desk. Okay. And they were able to uh, take, a, take a print off the desk. So this really is law and order of the day. Yeah. Doom, doom. Torn from today's headlines. <laughs> it but is. It's, it's just remarkably effective. And, again, I hate to keep repeating a point, but it's so modern. It's, this could come out today. And thank God it isn't because it would not be a good movie. Through these lenses, at this time, this re level of restraint and thoughtfulness. Well, it's the same reason why we like Blade Runner. You know, he goes to the, the tub and he finds the scale. He takes the scale, he takes it to an expert. Expert says it's, a, it's off a snake. Okay, where do you find the guy who made the snake? He goes to him and says, well, where, where did you sell this snake? Well, I sold it to this guy who owns this club. Go to the club and try to find the snake. Snake is being worn by a by a stripper who's working out back. So uh -huh. he, it winds up being uh, one of the murderers that he's looking for. It's, it's no different than that. It's why we, we like it, even though it's a, a sci-fi film, right? You know, it's, it is that it's the, why we, so many millions of people are fans of the 14 different law and orders that have been playing for the last 30 years. But this was the first procedural. It, it seems to, I can't, I'm as having as I can a tell. hard time thinking of one that's, that's before this, and and if this is the first one, and I think it is, it's a huge punch. I mean, it packs it. It doesn't have a little bit. No, it has there. a lot. And I do like how even in 1930s Germany, the IRS is the most terrifying force <laughs> on the planet. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it didn't matter. So there were there were a lot of uh, serial killers that were running around Weimar at the time. Not a just lot? Peter, there are a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There was one called uh, Harmon, Grossman, Dinke, and they were all... It's like in California the, in the 80s and 70s? Yes. <laughs> or the 60s. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. And this is what I was saying before. It was ripped out of the day's headlines. Long noticed what he described as the, the angst, psychosis, right? Mm -hmm. The revolting mentality. Uh, Carl Dinke, one of the serial killers, this is where I was going. He was a very devout churchgoer who kept the pickled remains of his victims in his house. Fritz Harman murdered 27 young men. He was tried in 1924 and was the first case in Germany uh, to discuss the insanity plea. He was committed, escaped, murdered another victim, and he was executed by guillotine in 1925. I do remember reading that. 
Yeah. Seems fair and reasonable. <laughs> they gave him a shot. Speaking of shots, look at this shot. Oh, yeah, the overhead. I, I doubt it was the first. I mean, a lot of these type of things you look at and say, oh, maybe this was the first. And you're sure it's not, but, but it's but so well done. It's There's so much going on. Uh, dolly shots, crane shots, push-ins, tracking shots, handheld shots. Uh, this film has it all. Mm-hmm. Overhead shots. And sound. And the way that a film is shot and the way that it's scored can make or break a picture. You know, it, this reminds me of uh, uh, the scene in uh, A Touch of Evil when Wells is pushing the camera from room to room and Charlton Heston is running around looking for the dynamite. Right. It, it's very, it calls back to that. And that's almost the Dutch angle there. Yes. Almost. <clears throat> right. Money was tight at Nero, like we were saying before, so they had to cut corners uh, where they could. There was a company in Germany called Tobis Klangfilm, which rented out the sound equipment. And as you can imagine, it was extraordinarily expensive. This is a famous shot of him and the knives framing him and being off kilter. But Nero couldn't afford all the equipment for the duration of the shoot, so they specifically planned a production to minimize the leasing of the sound equipment. So about one-third of the film is recorded with sound and two-thirds of the, f- of the film is silent. So, but here he's he's doing the same thing that he was doing in the mirror, which he's contorting his face in in reflection, and it's like he's getting hypnotized and lost in the moment. He's looking at the knives, and in the reflection, he sees another girl, and he's he's like in a trance now. It's, it's almost like that scene in Final Analysis when uh, uh, Edward Norton mm-hmm. jumps personalities. Like I don't think that's what he's doing. But no, it, but it is. I mean, maybe that's what Edward Norton was doing, though. Did I did I not say Edward Norton? No, well, no, you did, you did. Okay, okay. But it's I, move on. <laughs> move on. Okay. Right. So Laurie making faces in the mirror, and it seems like desperately trying to keep himself under control, or hmm. getting very excited about what's to come next. I'm not sure which one it is. Well, and he's specifically looking odd. And the, the arrow bouncing down here, of course, you're the, the, the circle being the key to hypnosis. Right. And the, the arrow pointing to the girl. That's pretty ham-fisted, but... It is. It's on the nose. But at the time, maybe not so much. And Lori was specifically picked out to be the, the murderer because he had this round face, because he looked odd. And he is definitely an unusual-looking dude. Yeah, he's kind of got like a corpulent body, if that's a word. And he can contort his face to make it look demonic. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried has this great story where, uh, uh, and I don't know who told it to him or how he heard, but uh, Peter Lorre went into a radio station to do an interview. And they said, well, can you say, you know, this is Peter Lorre and you're listening to WKRP, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. And he said, hi, this is Peter Lorre and you're listening to WKRP. And they said, no, no, can you do it like Peter Lorre? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but I am Peter Lorre. And how do no, you, you know what I mean? How do you want me to do it? And so they do this. Hello, this is Peter Lorre, and you're listening to WKRP. And Peter Lorre's like, I don't sound like that. But you did in the Maltese Falcon, and we're keeping you like that. <laughs> this is another famous shot, you know, the animal caged, mm-hmm. right? Or at least hidden. Lots of things you can make out. And this camera move that pushes in on him is pretty, pretty crazy. Lori was actually acting on stage at night. He was shooting M during the day. 
could explain his rather exhausted look the entire time. Yeah. And Bogdanovich at one point said that it, it's a struggle to find out if this is a long film or is this a Laurie film? Because it just made him so incredibly famous. Way more than long. Oh, sure. I mean, this is a star-making performance. I mean... The, the bad thing about it, um, I don't remember his real name. I think it was Lowenstein, and he's not from Germany. He was originally from uh, Hungar Hungary. He was a Hungarian Jew. Uh, Fritz Hippler, who was another German director, he did a notorious fake documentary in 1940 that was called The Eternal Jew. Uh, and it is rank propaganda of the worst kind. I watched it when I was in grad school, okay. and it, it, it made you want to vomit continuously for 90 minutes. And it ran footage like from Lori. Reefer Madness? Produce? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't go quite that far. but So Reefer Madness was definitely worse. <laughs> much, much worse propaganda. Well, Reefer, Reefer Madness was stupid. Well, it sounds like what the, you're talking about may eternal, have been pretty the, stupid. The Eternal Jew is nauseating. Gotcha. Uh, you, would, you would need some Reefer to get through the Eternal Jew. Uh, but it, it ran footage from M, Lori even M, and it used his role to exemplify what a dangerous Jew was. Well, I could see where that would be effective. <laughs> his, Peter his... Lori is definitely a dangerous dude in this picture. Actually, <laughs> it's, it's, he is remarkably effective in this movie. Uh -huh. I mean, he is someone who is terrifying. I mean, he is almost your first Freddy Krueger, but presented yeah. significantly more sympathetically. But just as terrifying. Well, and, but I would say that he has this. Like, I went to a Judas Priest concert once, and uh, Rob Helford, the singer, you talk about somebody who just takes your fucking eyeballs and just doesn't let go. And Laurie does that, like when he's in Casablanca. Oh, yeah. Until he disappears, your eyes are on him. Like, I know it's, it's kind of distracting having Bogart come in and out, but you're really like, oh, that Laurie guy. He's a whack job. I'm going to watch yeah. him. Yeah. And in the Maltese Falcon, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's same really it. Yeah. It's the same thing. You're just tied into him. And so he runs the last hour of this film. Here's the, here's the guy listening to Ghent. The balloon song. Yeah. He's like, I, I recognize this. So he's actually using... authentically blind. Was he? Well, I don't know if the actor was, but remember previously the uh, beggar was right, blind. right, yeah. And here, uh, this calls back to where Long wanted to use sound in a very distinctive way as part of the plot. Yeah, I mean, from what I remember reading in the BFI book you loaned me, he was very, very, very reluctant to utilize sound. So it's rather shocking how effectively he was able to integrate it and drive the story. Yeah. Most people were using it as a, a novelty or, or just um, beating you over the head with it. I would assume. Right. Well, it, the jazz singer is kind of beating you it kind of sort of over is. the head. Yeah. yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. It right? does. But this is kind of like, you know, I hate to be so wrong, but you know, avatar was a shocking introduction to how to utilize 3d in a manner that was compelling. Oh, I agree with and, that. And, but yeah. it's, it's kind of a dumb thing to bring up in the middle of this podcast. But this, but then everything after it was just terrible. Yes, in terms not, of 3D. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing I want to watch. But this yeah. is kind of the same thing. It's like, well, if you're going to do it, 
this is how you do it. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's the way you do yeah, it. Yeah, well, I, I remember 3D, of course, had been around for decades before oh, Avatar. But right. Avatar seemed to be like the first one in which uh, uh, Cameron was, was using it uh, as a storytelling. use. Right, a storytelling story. technique yeah. to enhance the environment that you were thrown into. And it was it stopped people from like just doing this like sure. to the audience, throwing in like a hand in your face or, or an eyeball out of or Jaws 3D was the floating arm or whatever Man, that was bad and i would say that lang is doing the same the same thing sound oh. existed before him but he was able but, to utilize in a way that really enhanced the story right i mean he ratchets up the tension and yeah or the, or the foot paces the way that the foot paces are are uh, you hear the the footsteps uh increase with intensity uh th- from the moment they discover the murderer to a, like a frenzied yep. rate, and he's he's doing that to quicken the the pace. So it's, no pun intended. But it's, <laughs> but it is re, it is really well done. Yeah. Or or how loud um uh, when they're trying to get into the um, they're trying to get into the warehouse mm-hmm. and they're they're they've got clanging like nine, and banging. Clang, yeah, and it's just it's so loud. And it's really disconcerting. So here is the point where, you know, part two of the story really takes Yeah, so off. here's another thing. So the M, I don't know if you ever looked at your hand, but there's an M on your hand. And he's just following the creases on the hand. You don't well, have a, you don't have an M on you figuring stuff out. <laughs> you never noticed that? Check out the big brain on Brad. <laughs> well, it's something I never, ever thought about. Yeah, so uh, in right before this shot, when it was on the concrete, there was a shadow. And it, part of it was her leg was making the shadow of the end. And here we begin where I actually, yeah, I recognize this because it was one of those MTV. And I remember watching this movie for the first time. MTV! Yeah. There it is. Which, I mean, to anybody who has listened to this podcast that's younger than 30, is probably, what the fuck is he yeah, talking Yeah, what the fuck about? is MTV? Yeah. It was before the YouTube. Which is hard to believe because the YouTube has been around forever. And this is, again, just perfectly illustrative how, I don't know anything about police work because I'm not a policeman, but so much of your job or your work or your life is job or work. Yeah, how clever am I? But it is one of those where there's so much insignificant drudgery that if it's reexamined, changes your perception significantly. Sure. Going back to the curtain case here, that's how they found one of the pieces of evidence that they used in the curtain trial. We have the the police and the criminals. Theoretically, we have order and disorder. But Long is kind of messing with us because by the end of the film, the organized side of the criminals and the cops proved to be very disorderly. Right. And then you have you know justice and revenge, which are not the same thing. And then you're sort of pitted with uh, democracy and fascism against each other. Like, which one is which? I mean, are, are the police being fascist by bringing the hammer down? Or are the criminals being fascist by inherently being criminal? Is there a, any side that's democratic? Because the, the underworld well, is I, just I, I bringing you, the about the will of The underworld was absolutely democratic. Yeah. They're 100% democratic. They're fulfilling the will of the people. Yep, exactly. 
every single person. They're pretty consistent, except for the defense attorney. And the intercutting, particularly like we were, you were saying before, the intercutting between the, the criminals meeting and then the police meeting, and then the intercutting between the uh, uh, going through the police evidence and then going through the uh, what the crooks were stealing. There's tons of intercounting and the smoky rooms back and forth. The irony is the police are basically trying to resolve a crime after the fact and the underworld is trying to prevent the next crime from happening because they think that it's going to save their rackets. Right. Right. So crime prevention which, by the criminals. And I don't know which one Long wants us to follow. Maybe he's got no fight in the game whatsoever and is just whatever makes sense to you, the viewer. And here he just looks and he just notices all of a sudden... And he recognizes that. Right. The gig and, is up. And, and the connotation, again, like when he sees the M, he knows what the M means. Because the connotation in German was murder. Which is very... It's the one thing that's rather strange that he would immediately think that. But I guess it, it makes sense within the story. So let me retract that. There's another M coming up. He walks down the street, and the two of them are following him. It's L this one here. You see how it's kind of got that okay. angle. Yes, I can see. I can see that. Yeah. And, but again, it's a is a perfectly framed shot. Yeah. And and this is all inside that uh, that Zeppelin hollow, the hangar. That was a. Uh... It's a lot of construction these guys pulled off. Yeah. So now he's getting cornered. He's a rat in a cage. And there's a, there's a seriality that's going on, and not so much in this scene. Right? He's being he's being cornered, but like we were talking before about the the evidence the police were laying out, and then the. Uh, the stuff that the, the the criminals were all mounting on the table mm -hmm. or the, the knives that he was looking at in the, in the window. There's lots of seriality going on. Uh, the police saying there's 60 volumes of evidence and 1,500 leads gathered, gathered, right? Right. The prices that were on the, the board. That were changing daily. Yeah. It's kind of like the stock market. It's very much. You know? <laughs> it's very much supply and demand. Now, right after the scene where the mob attacks the pickpocket, there was a scene where uh, people all over Germany were trying to take credit for the murder, and the scene was cut. Apparently, it showed Lohmann taking calls and arguing with people trying to turn themselves into police for the crime. It shows Lohmann dealing with all these quacks, and that's why uh, the police didn't respond to the killer's letter, and that's why Beckert writes his letter to the media. So it kind of it kind of replayed that situation with Curtin that I talked about before. Yes. So there was a, a cause and effect relationship that we missed. No one knows what happened to the scene. Critics saw it at the premiere and they wrote about it. So we know that it was shot and we know that it cut, was cut into the film, but then no one seems to have seen it since long must have cut it, but we don't know if it survived distribution or not. And we don't know why long cut it out. He never talked about it. And Bogdanovich never brought it up. 
They submitted the dialogue from the script to the Weimar Movie Censorship Board, which is why we have a record of the scene, and we know for a fact that it existed, but so far not a single copy of the celluloid anywhere in the world has been found. And I'm thinking that it was cut after the premiere to bring the runtime down from 117 to 111 minutes for whatever reason. And that's the commonly accepted version. Sure. You do have some that are just a little bit longer and a little bit shorter. But the one from the Criterion is is the one that they found uh, uh, in the German archives. And it's the most complete that's yes, available? Yes, it's the most complete. The closest to, to what Long said was, was what he wanted. All right, so the beggars have called for backup, which I don't know how they're pulling off, you know, pay phone calls, but you know what? They are. I, you know, pay phone. Well, here's, here's a phone booth. I'm just something that I've just never thought about. When, when did pay phones become common when on was streets? I, I don't know. I mean, I, when do you start seeing them in, in movies? Like, you see them in the 50s. So you couldn't have a film noir without a payphone. Oh, no, it would be impossible. Yeah. Right? Superman so, wouldn't exist without a payphone. Okay, so now we're we're at least back to the, the early 30s. 50s. Or, okay. Well, okay, the movies and all that, yeah, yeah. for sure. 50s. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to for think of, uh, you know, is there a scene in, well, not Casablanca, but. Not that I recall. Or, or Citizen Kane. You know, I'm thinking of, or, or uh, His Girl Friday. Like, journalists running into right. Phone booths. I want to say His Girl Friday, I believe, did, because I seem to recall a scene, but I reserve the right to be wrong. This this is cra- another, like, serial thing going on here. Just stuff. Much, much stuff. Yeah. And it is unclear at this one. It's like, why does this sentry not find him? Because later, when they discover him, He's in the you know only shed or the only holding area that doesn't have a padlock. So how this oh. escapes the actual guard is unclear to me, but that's not relevant. It's just one of those things. I'm not really sure. Well, and this is great. I mean, you actually just see his chest just heaving here, like he is so scared. Yeah, and the cinematography and it's it's pretty amazing. Lift off. Not wasting time. Not wasting time. Vasastas. <laughs> okay, so the disturbing element of the movie, the Kinder Mortar, yes. um, it centers on something that we all recognize, but we don't really want to talk about. And Long hinted strongly at it, and that's the degree to which killing these girls gives Beckert a release normally affiliated with a sexual act. So the compulsion to murder is the same as a sexual drive. 
That's the inference. That's sure. the inference, yeah. He commits his crimes in the heat of sexual arousal, both to punish his victims for the sexuality that he witnesses from them or projects onto them, we should probably say, and to discharge sexual urges that he either can't contain or he can't channel into something else. And Kay said that Beckert's crimes may be sexually motivated, but the sexual intent turns upon itself to produce a result that is destructive rather than procreative. Violence becomes not an adjunct, but a substitute for sex, turning Beckert's crime into a particular blend of destructive desire known as lustmord, right? Lust for murder. In this case, lustmord, that re, that, uh, is representative because it violates the body of a child. And I mean, who, who wants to talk about that? Certainly not me. No, I think that that's one of those 15 things that I have no interest in talking about ever. (laughs) Yeah. Probably in the top three. There's a great book on that topic. Um, uh, called Loose Mord, A Sexual Murder in Weimar, Germany, which is very good. And it's, kind of, it's got an outrageous chapter about Brian De Palma. Really? Which you would find very interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And particularly it, along the lines of penetration in oh, Brian okay. De Palma. Yeah. That sounds really disturbing. <laughs> it's a disturbing chapter to read. Yeah. Um, now, when he's when he's caught with the second girl, he's actually walking by a poster, a movie poster on the wall of West Front 1918. Yes. And uh, I saw it, but it didn't bring attention to it. And, I mean, we can't escape the influence of of the First World War on, on Weimar, Germany, or this film. I mean, Elsie doesn't have the debt. None of the kids in that little circle have fathers. And with the exception of, of some of the police force, there's, there's no uh, men of really military age. You've got uh, like a lot of old guys around the killer basically is the only one that's of military age. I mean, Loman is so much older. He looks mm-hmm. like he's in his late forties or fifties. And at, at one point, uh, I think the girl, the second girl actually uh, refers to Lori as uncle. Right. Right. Because you, you may have a lot of uncles in the society. There's no fathers. All the fathers are dead. Right, all the cops have gray hair. Which makes him more appealing to his victims because he's more of a father figure right. than they're used to. He's replacing that role. He's he's of that right age, right? The mob and the police, we talked about that before. Society mobilizing against the murder like they're at war. Right. And there are some authors who said that the war effort did not stop when the war was over. That there were there were these volunteer armies all over uh, Weimar Germany called Freikorps and paramilitaries. And one of them, of course, was the NSDAP, uh, the, the Stimmabteilung right. from uh, the Nazis. But the, they had Stahnhelm. They had tons of, uh, of other paramilitaries. Did. Yeah, it was, it was very popular because, of course, everyone who was military-aged was formerly in the army. And the, the military by the Versailles Treaty was limited to 100,000 men in the army. So what were the, what were the other millions going to do? Uh, they were unemployed. So they, they joined these, these paramilitaries. And uh, they had armed insurrectionists of all stripes starting riots. And they fought hand-to-hand all over Germany during the revolutions, 1919, 1920. 
And uh, Eric Marie Remarque, who was a, a German Frenchman who wrote a book called All's Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. They made an American movie of it. It was very popular. And uh, it was released in Germany, and it started riots. And these Freikorps went out and just trashed all of Germany during during those riots. And the film was eventually it was banned by the Nazis because it was seen as anti-war. <laughs> huh. All quiet on the Western Front. Anti-war? What? <laughs> I hadn't heard that interpretation. And that wasn't popular with the Nazis. Right. And, and his book sold a million copies in Germany. Right. But Long does allude to war in him. Like the raid on the basement is shot kind of like a military operation. Mm-hmm. And then you, later on, there's like a gangster looking through binoculars, kind of like he's reconnoitering a position. And then, of course, we see cripples all over the place. There's amputees, the, the beggar army. Right. So there, there is a sort of insinuation this guy going through the floor, like There's, these professional criminals. Right. right. Where do they learn these skills? Probably the army. Very likely. Which, of course, would have been incredibly pertinent when this came out. Yeah. And, you know, the, <clears throat> the desperation on both ends to find the criminal by the criminals and his unbelievable desire to escape by any means ne- necessary. So, I mean, it's just kind of a propulsive sequence in the film that's really ratcheted up from a tension standpoint. There's so much that's related to not having enough time and the actions associated with trying to get this accomplished in the time frame that they do have. Right. Yeah, time counting down. Mm -hmm. The the clocks that are on the walls. Yeah. And it is an anxiety-inducing sequence. Yeah, I mean, he's holding a stopwatch. He, like, he's timing the driller. Right. And then he has to reset the clock so they don't go off. Yeah. And, and that element of, of time counting down and ratcheting up the... Uh, the, the tension? The tension in the movie. Thank you. Yeah, the tension in the movie. It's, it's so much like Hitchcock... And it's and if you look at Hitchcock films during this time, like I think this is three years before The Man Who Knew Too Much. Sounds right. And which is a Hitchcock film with Laurie in it, mm-hmm. uh, also on Criterion. And uh, uh, you know that that's a great film, but it, it's it's almost like and I hesitate to say this, but M is kind of like Hitchcock before Hitchcock was cool. Yeah, or it was uh, definitely an influence on him. You could see that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do see that in um, the 39 Steps. I don't remember if that was before or after The Man Who Knew Too Much. I think it was before, but I could be mistaken. Which is not a helpful comment, but you're welcome. Yeah, but if you if you see Hitchcock's silent films, they, they don't look anything like this. No, they're not this professional. I mean, not, yeah, I mean, not to say that they're boring. It's no. Just, it's just different. Him and then, God, his eyes just bulging out like that. He looks like he's very uncomfortable in his own skin, not only as a character, but also as an actor. Yeah. Trying to find his place in the world. Mm-hmm. And that scene where they're using the electric drill to get into the building, and it cuts to Lori breaking his pocket knife, trying to escape from the building. More intercutting. And the knife, of course, is his murder weapon, so it breaks. So you know he's right. not going to use it again. And it's like a symbol to us that we know that his, his goose is cooked. 
So there's more duality going on. And of course, it's not just in the intercutting. Uh, Beckert is this very effeminate man who does these very horrible and nasty things. And how could you consider those horrible things to be considered effeminate? That doesn't really match. But that goes back to, you know, that guy next door, the serial killer. He was really quiet and he nobody, no, you know, very polite. Yeah. didn't bother anybody. And Laurie plays us to a T. He's this vicious murderer, but at the end of the film, you see him captured and he's caged and he's facing certain death and, and he does everything he can to not look like the predator that he is. Right. He is definitely the puppy that shit on the floor, but is very sorry about it. Yeah. And again, a rather sophisticated alarm system here. Much more so than I was anticipating. Oh, yeah, well, the police pull the card, mm-hmm. and then they've got a, the layout of the, the room. Beverages always assist. Lubricating the throat. Someone can speak. It's just fitting that we're celebrating a German film by drinking beer. Absolutely. Even though mine is technically a cerveza. (laughs) And a lot of these shots in the warehouse, God, this, this is amazing. A lot of these shots in the in the warehouse, uh, they kind of mimic the uh, the opening shots of the the empty apartment building when they're looking for Elsie. It's it's, it's almost like they're still life paintings, right? And no, I can see that. And I know that Long wouldn't be the first person to copy uh, Monet or Manet and try to recreate something that is still you know Scorsese's been. Mm-hmm. Uh, Accused is the wrong word. People have pointed that out. There he is, the dog. And it's almost like he's in already, in, yeah, locked. In, yeah, it's, it's about to say that. I mean, he's in a prison in a prison, which is you know legitimate and literal, but also you know pretty you know metaphorical to his own personality. Long copied uh, parts of the break-in from real news stories. Really? Yeah, there was a there were some bank robbers in mm-hmm. Berlin in 1929 who cut a hole through the ceiling of a bank to get to the safe deposit room. So this instantly instantly makes me want to think, okay, what are the five greatest bank heist movies of all time? Not we shouldn't go through that right now. No, we now, shouldn't go through that now. Definitely later cuz I saw that guy drilling through the hole and I was thinking, "Geez, in 1930 they're mm-hmm. they're still they're doing that then." the door see here's the still life that i was talking about mm-hmm. crime photos right they are and they are replicated and displayed again pretty much as crime photos which you know we the audience right now we know the story so it all makes sense but when loman and the other police are looking at the images initially it's like i don't get it what are these people doing right and this this feels like a finale, like we're almost at the yeah, end. It but, should be but the we're climax. We're but still, still thirty minutes out. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda and enlightenment during and enlightenment. The, okay. Yeah, that's that was the technical name of it, um, and he was in charge of Ufa. He he kept a diary and wrote it almost every day. 
And unbelievably, they found this diary uh, after the war. And he wrote in his diary the night that he went to go see him at the premiere. He said, fantastic. Against humanitarian sentimentality for the death penalty. Well made. <laughs> Long will be our director someday. <laughs> well, and all the plans on mice and men. And thank goodness he wasn't because I think he'd be more effective than Riefenstahl. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have made a significant impact in the by the end, but you know what? No need to make it longer. And the subtle wear down of the bank robber. Yeah. Um, Franz. I wanted to go into this kind of bit because earlier in the film, Loman. Uh, complains that you know the public won't cooperate with us mm -hmm. and you see how incompetent the police are and you wonder well well that's why and you know you see the cop escort elsie effectively to her death well do you think the police are portrayed as incompetent or overwhelmed and just i mean i think they're definitely I, I, overwhelmed i don't think they're incompetent i mean it's not like they don't care and loman seems to be very effective at like you were seeing the police procedural of tracking down right, the and nelson bolts of the investigation and i don't think there's any glaring errors that they do no they just can't find them right because it's impossible it is a needle in a haystack and it kind of illustrates that i mean gosh knows how many cases are actually solved through what seems to be darn near blind luck but i'm sure there's a reasonable percentage well it's it's like uh tim mcveigh mm -hmm. was in jail right um when they were looking for him that and, makes it and, incredibly challenging and incredibly easy to find him right that was the reason why they could not track him down is because he had been stopped at a traffic stop and he I think was he already a, there <laughs> he had a firearm in the car that was unregistered okay. and so he was in jail uh waiting trial for that uh and obviously he didn't say i I pulled this so, off. By the way. <laughs> right? So uh, eventually when they when they did the paperwork and, and were looking for, okay, who rented this car? And then they found the car and the alias and all of that. Then the person who rented that car into that alias, oh, well, he's, he's in this jail. So it, it took them a while to get to that point. But, it, but effectively it was blind luck. If he had not been in that jail cell. Hey. Maybe he would have been. Know. He would have been gone. I don't know if anyone ever would have. Probably would never have found him. Right, pretty even, close to it. Even if they had a, a photo of him, you'd, you'd have to rely on somebody recognizing that photo in a nation of three hundred million. I mean, right. let's face it; the odds are against you. But because he had already been picked up for a different crime, mm -hmm. so you make your own luck, and sometimes luck just happens. I think the moral of the story is: don't commit crime, and you won't have a problem. <laughs> You know, the, the, I'm not being political. I promise you I'm not being political. But, mm -hmm. you know, there was a protest in downtown Houston a couple of weeks ago. Right. Uh, we live, for those of you who don't know Houston very well, it is a commuter city. You have to get in your car and care to go someplace in order to get there and, and do, and do everywhere things. Everywhere is 45 minutes away. Everything is. And so this woman drove in from, from a suburb and, and threw a rock at a cop. Cops went into the crowd to get her. Uh, She's resisting arrest, so they have to hog tire, pull her back of a, a police car, and she's crying and screaming the entire time. And I'm thinking, but you chose to do this. Right. You you chose to get in your car, drive 45 minutes, and pick up a rock and throw it at a cop. 
So I really think that you forfeit your right to complain after uh, you're hit with a baton and pulled out of the crowd and thrown in the back of a car. Yeah. How many kids cry when they get caught for doing something? They all cry. Exactly. It's an emotional response. Swear to that any time. Really? You'll swear to that any time? He will. He's a he's an honorable he's an honorable man. How many people are honorable in M? I think actually a fairly high percentage of them is my perception. I get that idea too. I don't I mean it's one of those where I think everybody is criticized to a degree, especially like I said, the public, but but the public are about the only people who are portrayed without any degree of sympathy. Right. I think the cops and the professional criminals and, uh, you know, the villain of the piece and the victims for sure, they're all portrayed with a certain degree of nuance and understanding. The, the people I really have empathy for in this film at the end are the mothers mm-hmm. when they're when they're at the trial. Right. That's after the verdict has been handed in. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, this is, I don't think that this is a film that pulls your heartstrings. Um, okay, so this is a very weird oh, that angle, is just, and I don't get it. It is really, and you can obviously see his junk in the right-hand yeah, side of the very pants. bizarre. Like, why did Lang do this? I don't know. I think this is one of those where he probably had something in mind. But and, and he failed to Either that or off. I'm just way too simple. Probably the latter. But it is a, I mean, we're watching it again saying, Wow, that is so weird. <laughs> to put it under that, it's, it's like somebody challenged him. Yeah, it said, "Yeah, but you couldn't get a cock shot in here." Oh, yeah, yeah. And this push in. Everyone's clothes look so ill-fitting. Mm-hmm. If if you look at similar films in Hollywood at the same time, uh, fashion. I don't know what the difference would be between Europe and and America, but. The 30s, the clothes were baggier, particularly in the 40s. Right. They hung off the frame more, and I couldn't tell you why that was, but uh, in in M, it just seems like everything's just really tight. There's more crime, more still life photography. This is the recreation of the crime scene, and they can't quite figure out what's the objective here. What is going on? Yeah, page after page. It's like, okay. These are the most incompetent criminals ever. What could they have been looking for? But the damage and efforts they went through is shows that they're going for something incredibly valuable. And they didn't take anything. Nope. Well, they took one thing. They took one thing, but what was it? Nothing that's obvious from the images, that's for sure. That break through the floor Mm -hmm. almost reminds me of um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Okay. Have you seen that? Oh, man, I did, but it was 30 years ago. Michael Cimino. Yeah. uh, 1974, Jeff Bridges, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw it on TBS back in the 80s or something. Yeah. yeah. It's worth it's worth a revisit. I saw it last year. It, it holds up probably more so than most of Chimino's other films. But again, look at this composition. He see he's doing the same damn thing here, where uh, Loman's in front of a. Uh, and then there's the curtain that separates the yes, two characters. Right there's a vertical divide, mm-hmm. 
this very strange map of Berlin on over his shoulder, which does not look like Berlin to me. The Curtin murders took place in Hamburg. The Harmon murders took place in uh, Dusseldorf. And then the third murders, uh, the Denke murders, took place uh, in the south. The town whose name I can't remember. I want to say Essen. And it, it was reading Lustmord and reading Kays' book on how current the child murders were just, I would say not the child murders, but because uh, Curtin was, was the child murder in question, but there were the other serialities, serial murders that are going on at the time, decades before they called it serial. You had the sense of uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping. Right. And um, the Sacco and Vanzetti trial and similar, similar, Cases that were huge during the 30s. And you can visualize the army of photographers and reporters that are crisscrossing the city trying to keep up with the cops or trying to get ahead of the cops. I'm getting the same sense of that in M. In fact, it's probably the only element that's probably missing in M is the media. And that is rather, I mean, it exists, right? Because the newspapers and the postings are everywhere and pretty much a constant. But, yeah, you don't see any media members. They're not represented, really, that I can recall at all, which is rather unusual and kind of refreshing. Yeah, there's one radio, I think, in the whole movie. And, obviously, this is an era in which, I mean, everybody everybody has a radio by 1930. Right. It is basically, it's the TV of the times. Yeah. Jesus Christ, look that at that beer. That is a big-ass beer mug. Oh, my God, I really want one of those. <laughs> and that sausage. So this this is kind of, this is just me just because of my background, and I'm sorry to even, what's that? I know that I'm, uh, what's the word? I'm projecting here. But okay. Loman in this particular shot mm-hmm. reminds me a lot of Hermann Goering. Okay. Just the slick back hair, the uh, the massive coat, and, and for lack of a better word, the uniform. And he's got this, like, jutting chest and belly. And the previous shot of, under the desk of him, he's, he's There's not the one massive. bit of actual humor in this whole movie, sorry. Oh, yeah. Where he drops the cigar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, there's humor in M, but it's so dark. Oh man, do you, I don't know if there's really, man, I don't know if there's any humor in it. It is black as night if it's there. It's, it's not meant to laugh at. No, you know, kind of wry humor, but that's right. not the only laugh out loud loud moment. Right. And this was a very, it, it's hard to put it into to contemporary feelings and attitudes, but this was a film where people in the theater were on the edge of their seat of, oh, look at this. Oh, what's going to happen next? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I could see this being a total uh, and then enthralling story because it, none of this is cliche at this point. Right. It becomes cliche after. It does. It gets copied and replicated and changed, but not significantly. 500 times. I mean, how many times have you seen this particular shot of the, you know, the guy sitting in the chair next to the inspector's desk? Yeah. I mean, I'm just, 
right off the top of my head, Running Scared mm-hmm. uh, by Peter Hyams in the in the eighties. Oh yeah. Uh, or uh, my God, whatever Lethal Weapon movie. One, two, three, or four. Yeah. Just pick one. It's just it's there. It's in every, uh, not every Law and Order, but a lot of them. Hill Street Blues. Yeah. It's just a, I don't know if it ever happens, but in my mind, uh, since it's been portrayed so much. Falling Down with uh, Robert Duvall does that. And uh, God, who did that one? Joel Schumacher? Joel Schumacher, yeah. He just passed away. He did. Last week. He did. He would be worthy of a reexamination because his filmography, I wonder if I, if it's better than I imagine it to be. Because for Schumacher, everybody thinks, oh, Batman and Robin. Right. That's kind of it. Right. Th- that's unfair. And that's That's unfair. Right. Yeah. He he was capable of truly great things. Well, it would be the same thing as looking at Long's film. Like, there, there are a lot of people that are under the assumption that the Long did great stuff in Germany. And then the minute he came to Hollywood, he just did shit. Mm-hmm. Which I would greatly argue against. Like, just, just because it's, it's severely dated, like Hangman Also Die is a a war propaganda film there's no way around that and it's extremely dated to to see it in that that time period but scarlet street i think as a film noir goes much farther and you know that's kind of like out of the past or a lot of those Mm -hmm. types of films I, i think it's unfair to uh to peg him like that Similar to Schumacher, of like, well, once he made that Batman film, it was all over. Although that was pretty bad. It was. It was pretty bad. Terrible. All right. So here's the kangaroos. Who's the? Yeah, the jury. See the slant and the the roof. Yeah. And then I can I can see where you're getting the, the symbolism for the M. And yeah, that's divided by that pole. And the all of a sudden sheer terror that our villain. Encounter. She knows so what's that's, going on. So that's a hangman. That's a gallows pole right exactly. there. Yeah, it that, really is. Yeah, that's, that's not even hidden very. So there's another goddamn M in the frame hmm. with the shadows yeah. and him in the center. That's less. It's uh, less obvious, but it exists. Yeah. And ironically, it's the guy who can't see who, who positively him. identifies him. Yep. With uh, the Hall of the Mountain King. And especially with Peter Lorre's bulging eyes, it's even more ironic. Right. Nine. Oh, my God, he brought the balloon. And how long kept that out of the shot until the last minute and then revealed it. I can just imagine everybody in the audience going, he is definitely done for now here. Now here's the, you know, the bowler hat aside Mm -hmm. where Shank just really looks like a Gestapo agent with the leather jacket and the leather gloves and pounding the fist on the table. And he's got a picture of Elsie Beckman. Under his fist, I think, right? Yeah. It's it's one of, it's multiple victims. It's one of yeah. Yes, that's right. And he's even forgotten them. Like it's he doesn't even remember the victims. There are so many. But when he sees them, he's like, Oh yeah, I killed her too. But he's successfully put out of his mind. It's And you don't you, you don't feel really any sympathy for him, but you can certainly understand his sheer terror and desire to escape 
not only the situation he's currently in, but just himself. Well, and there are some people uh, that I've I've read that say that well, you're you're kind of rooting for him at the end, but I I never did. No, I don't think that you're rooting for him. I, I don't think that's fair at all. At least from my perspective, I do get the sense that you're rooting for a degree of law and order and civility. I think that's what you're rooting for, but you're not necessarily rooting for him per se. Yeah. At least I'm not. You know, I think that the uh, defense attorney who gets appointed to him, the, whichever, whatever his skill was, is a criminal. But you're kind of rooting for him to have a successful argument by the end because it's pretty compelling. It doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it per se, but it's well thought out and is reasoned. And we talked before about how the crime syndicate is more representative of the public than the police are. Mm -hmm. And it really shows you the strange situation where the state is in, right? It's not really trusted. And that's unusual for a German film to convey that, yeah, like you can't trust the state. Well, they definitely put a lot of faith in the state to a degree. There's There's an argument for the state and its responsibilities. I don't know if the audience would have bought it at the time. I don't know if Long, Lang, actually believed it. But, you know, there is, I mean, like I said, in the, in the defense attorney's arguments are pretty, they're fairly sophisticated, you know. And they do place a lot of onus on the state, which I interpret as, you know, something of a failure of the state. Not successfully holding up their end of the bargain as is perceived in this. But there's certainly a degree of faith in the institution. Well, I, I think that you'll you'll find that sort of doubt or maybe obvious anti-state attitude mm-hmm. in a lot of Long's films. Uh, Metropolis is more about society. Right. You know, and I think that he, the mob mentality assigned, he, he trusts the people more and just for for uh, a German mentality, that's very strange. I mean, just because of their, their Prussian history and their, their emphasis of the military and their culture mm-hmm. and uh, the governments that they had. I mean, Weimar was a very weak government. It's almost, I don't want to call it a blip, but it was a very interesting experiment with a Republican, uh, Republican form of government that did not work. Right. It broke down and, and was replaced by a, a seizure of power. Uh, and, just to, to have a, any film that, that criticized uh, the state uh, it, almost in any way, shape, or form is very odd for any German film. Okay. Much less for a, a German director to have over over several films. That's that's kind of out of place. Understood. Okay. Your historical perspective and knowledge in that regard obviously trumps mine by a multitude, so I totally buy it. And that's, well, that's, just that's a, interesting. That's just a point of view, and I've been drinking. Well, none of those things invalidate it. <laughs> I mean, you get kind of... Have you read Kafka's The Trial? Oh, God, when I was in high school. Yeah. I kind of got that in this. So I think that's where a lot of people were trying to say, uh, well, I, I have a sympathy for him because he's facing this... this it's definitely imp- court, But at the same time, yeah, but he's not K. Right. I mean, he is certainly not innocent by almost any definition if you think that he is... Not in control of his own facilities of 
functions okay, maybe? But, but he knows his crime. Right, he knows his crime. And that's what I was getting at earlier with his, you know, letter to the papers. Yeah. He is wanting a certain degree of recognition and praise for his reprehensible behavior. Right. But, oh my gosh, he has got one of the most remarkable faces for acting you could possibly imagine. Absolutely. And it's unfortunate to a degree. He always got, you know, put in a very specific box. But I'm not really sure if you can make an argument against it. Because, you know, we don't see Steve Buscemi in a lot of, you know, romantic lead roles either. But they're definitely... Always interesting people to look at. Boardwalk Empire was strange for him, and it would be strange for someone like Lori. But I I didn't see him for a very long time after I saw the Maltese Falcon. So to me, he was always Joel Cairo. All right. And he was sort of the smooth-talking double talker. And... So to me, uh, I didn't, I wasn't saddled with that, but I know that if I had seen him first, I just would have instantly been pigeonholing him. Right. I mean, look at that. I mean, my God. And apparently he almost looks like a golem. Right. Right. To use a, you know, a Jewish tradition, which would make complete sense. And that is the one thing that's really interesting about this because... I could very easily see this movie having been made in 1945 or 43, where this is a direct criticism of the Nazis directly. And I I, I don't know if that's what this is, because they certainly weren't at that level of power by any stretch. I mean, they were starting to make pretty significant inroads, correct? I mean, you're at this time frame, they were starting to really make an impact on... Through the Nazis? Yes. By 1943? No, no. When this movie came out. When, oh, oh, well, yeah. Well, they had an election in 29, which uh, put them, uh, gave them the largest uh, parliamentary majority to date. And then they, they had another election in uh, 31, and they, they lost a few seats. So that would have been after M. Uh, but then they, they were scheduled for another election uh, in 33. And before they got there... Um, uh, the government broke down and was unable to form a majority and uh, Hitler convinced um, the existing prime minister, uh, Franz von Papen, uh, to a power sharing agreement. And they went to Hindenburg, who was the president of the, of the Weimar Republic, and he approved the deal. And so the power sharing agreement brought the Nazis in, whereas they would have a mixed cabinet. And uh, the cabinet would be uh, Social Democrats, which was, in, which, uh, which was the largest party in Germany, although they didn't have an, uh, a majority. And then Hitler would be named chancellor. And so, but once Hitler became chancellor, you know, the, I mean, that was, that was the death knell. Uh, so he was appointed. So they, they never had a revolution. It's not like they had fights right. in the streets and, you know, they had a, a, a turnover. That's not how it happened. It was the it was the ballot, not the bullet. And they were, I would say that the Nazis had the most fanatical following following uh, by 1930, but they did not have uh, the largest. And the election that, uh, right before he was appointed, they actually lost a couple of seats in, in the Reichstag. 
And so there's a lot of people that were thinking that they were actually on their way out. Their, their popularity had peaked. And you talk about a procedural. So here's interesting. You got like crime on the right and law on the left. Right. And there's definitely a, an abyss between the two. Mm-hmm. You see, you see a lot of these in Pabst's films, not Pabst, Lubitsch. Okay. Um, to be or not to be, which mm-hmm. is I think ten years after this. Yeah, because it was released right after Pearl Harbor. And this guy's standing as the, you know, the defender of liberty. Yeah, and of, and reason and justice to a degree. Right. And it's almost as if he's saying, like, look, you can do this if you want, but make no doubt that when you make this decision, it's morally questionable. If not wrong. If not wrong. And the mother brings up a good point. Well, you've never lost a child. What makes you the arbiter of, of morality? Which I think is sort of an, an invalid argument because she's basing hers on emotion and morality and emotion are certainly intertwined. But just because you're emotional doesn't mean you're being morally just. Right. Right. I mean, this and, is and that's an, the whole thing that I think is pretty fascinating about this little end game here in that we should be on the kangaroo court side. I mean, right. They are wanting kind of what you want. You know, we eradicate evil for sure. It makes sense. But that's the thing I find pretty interesting about the end of this is that there's a very compelling and sympathetic eye pointed towards following the letter of the law, which kind of makes a lot of sense now that I say it, because so much of the movie I perceive is a criticism of mob rule. And, you know, these things must be followed. There's a reason we have rules in place. It reminds me a lot of uh, Dirty Harry. Uh, Luke and I have just watched tons of Dirty Harry, the whole thing just very recently. And All five? Yeah. And it's... It's really like you want to root for Harry, but man, really? I mean, Harry does well, some sketchy yeah. shit, right? Well, Harry's taking care of problems. <laughs> right. I I mean, he would have, Lo, um, not Loman, Backman would have no chance with Dirty Harry walking around the streets oh, no. of Berlin. Like, no. that would be over. Yeah, well, in a certain degree, there's a difference, right? Because Dirty Harry is a single person. He is definitely always portrayed as a individual who's making decisions. He's not following mob rule. He's following, for better or worse, Harry Callahan's rules. Right. And here's the end. So, at the end, yeah. they don't really say that he's been sentenced to death, but that's always been my reading of it. Yeah, and, and then what I don't like about it is it throws in a, well, if you looked after your children more, then this wouldn't happen. Yeah, I kinda, do find that very strange. It's very weird, and, and Long actually uh, backed that up later when they, they asked him about it. I think it was it was uh, in Bogdanovich's book. He's like, well, I you know I wanted to say that you know the, the mothers should really be looking after their children more. And, and I, I find that very strange. It's like, that doesn't fit no. any of the narrative. 
No, it doesn't. It's, I mean, it's, and it's kind of like tacked on the end. Like it yeah. just ends abruptly and then... It's, it's almost like it was pulled from a different movie. Yeah. So, and there's no solution beyond the, that distraught mother's call for vigilance. M was never generally released in the U.S. It only played for a week uh, in German with English subtitles in New York. But isn't there an English language version? There, uh, there is yes. Uh, well, a dubbed one, which ran longer. But Laurie spoke English in that. Did he? I believe so. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you, okay. So now the movie is done. There are yeah. no end credits. Right. Go to the supplements. So this is the joy of having the Criterion Blu-ray. Supplements. Yeah. There is a, there's an English version. The English version. And I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. So I know about this just because of... I have not seen this, but... Uh, okay, so Peter Lorre does star in it. In the early this sound era, monologue. many films were shot in multiple versions for different countries. And it was not uncommon for a completely new cast to reshoot a film in their native language. M, however, was a more hybrid affair with a mix of dubbing and reshoots, resulting in French and English language versions. Presumably for Great Britain. Yes. In addition to the German original. The French M was found in the 1990s, but the English version proved elusive, thanks to the persistence of German film scholars Robert Fischer and Hans Michael Bach. A print was finally located in the BFI archives in 2005. Though Fritz Long probably did not participate in the filming of this version, Peter Lorre does star in it. Thus, his famous monologue at the end of the film must now be considered his English language debut. So, okay, so they did the same thing for, I just hit play for those of you who uh, have the... Because this is a visual medium. Right, this print is from the the National National Film and Television Archive, the Bundes Archive. So, um... So there's a British Board of Film Censors. Yeah, so they did the same thing to uh, Dr. Mabuse. And this is a very rough print. Oh, yeah, this is this is not cleaned at all. Eric Hakim uh, presents Fritz Long's masterpiece. So you know that this came uh, later, much later. It has a different entrance. Um, so in the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, I know I know more about that than I do about this in terms of how they structured it. So Long actually had a, a cast that was trilingual with, okay. the, with the exception of one or two actors who did not uh, speak English. So what he would do was he would direct a scene, film it, and then film the same exact thing in French at the same time. Just have him rerun it. Just have him rerun it in a different language. And he would switch out the one actor who could not speak English. Okay. With someone who did speak English. Right. And then that actor would substitute in, in all in previous all scenes. Yeah. Right. And so effectively you could shoot three versions at the same time. And then you would cut the film together and, and give it to different markets. It's a it's a rather brilliant concept. Oh, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. A lot, a lot better than some terrible dubbing. Okay. Right. So... The point was, this didn't really receive a release in the States at all. Right, right. Um, it, it was, it did have a release, but it was limited. Right. And they did run, my notes say, a dubbed version in English. That's why I was wondering, is if it was dubbed, I guess it was, as opposed to this 
English version, which is yeah. surprising, but I mean, heck, why not? Laurie returned to Germany in 1951 because you know, he had to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so he directed and starred in a film called Der Verloren, The Lost One. And it's a story told in flashbacks of a scientist who is working for the Nazis who turns into a compulsive serial killer. And he mimics on a small scale the state-sanctioned mass murder. The state covers up his crimes and he cannot achieve self-justice, so he throws himself under a train in the finale. Okay, that's an ending. Yeah, but M was remade in the 50s. I, I had seen that. I, I, I haven't seen was, it. Was it remade in the United States? or was Yes, it a, okay. yeah, an English language version. I bet it's terrible. I bet it is too. And they asked uh, Long, why didn't... Why didn't you? Why didn't you do it? He's like, why would I want to? Exactly. That was exactly his response. (laughs) I've kind of already made it, and it's pretty good. Okay. All right. I think that's it. I'm okay with that. Do you have any final words on him? I I don't. I mean, nothing that I haven't already said, so I'm not going to repeat what I've already brought out there. It, It is a masterpiece. It is, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come back. I know... I was your second, third, fourth choice. And, that, and that's fine, right? It's actually very unfortunate that your original choice was, well, I was about to say hesitant, but that's not right. I mean, just straight refused to do it. So. Yeah, I think that, that Barbara would have provided Yeah, it would have been a, a lot remarkable. Of so, and she has, yeah, she has cultural inflections uh, because she's fluent in German. So you bring her, you know, the testament of Dr. Mubuse. Right, I would love. I would love to do that. I mean, with it, you yeah. probably should. And she, one of her favorite German films is Destiny. So what you do is you show her this, or you let her listen to this podcast. And after twenty minutes, when she's like, "That dude needs to shut the fuck up," <laughs> right? Dylan, I thought I taught you exactly, that. and that's just what you do. Oh yeah, no brainer. She'll, she'll jump on board. She'll do it. Okay. Oh, you well, see, you. this see, this is English. Yeah. English. Yeah. Re- sorry, we've been drinking all after. Reward missing since February 11th. But yeah. it was funny because the entire thing wasn't English. Right. But originally, they saw the German print, and it had a German name, Kurt Kolotsky. I guess is the, the the previous child's name. Right. So I think it still takes place in Germany, even though it's just an English language. Right. Version. Well, again, like you this were is saying, it's probably really rough print. Yeah, <laughs> like, like you were saying, it was probably marketed more for Britain. Right, I'm sure it was, yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. To, I can't believe I, I didn't just run through this one, too. So now I'm very interested. I'm not going to do it now. No. But but there there's a point where it's going to be worth watching as a curio, if nothing else. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. I hope I brought something to the table. I think you did. All right. Beer, if nothing else. Beer, if nothing else. All right, thanks for hanging out with Dave and I while we watched M. You can find the Super 70 Podcast wherever you find podcasts, and you can find it, my books, and my blog at www.thatdillandavis.com. For up-to-date film reviews, check out my profile on letterbox.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in Banff National Park. <laughs>